Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I'm your host, Quentin. We're going to talk a little bit of baseball this morning. It is a Sunday. There's nothing better than a Sunday morning, a little baseball talk, right? I, one of the things, man, I loved more than anything growing up was waking up in the morning, man, with my old man, right? So my dad, he, uh, he built stuff, right? So he was like a contractor, right? That's what he did. And his mornings always started super early. Like this guy would wake up at 4 a.m., put the coffee on and things like that. And I would always wake up with him, you know, at like 5 a.m. I would I would start to stir and get up and he would always be watching Sports Center, man, and always have a newspaper in his hand. And I think it's because of times like that, you know, one of my favorite things to do like on weekend mornings when I have the time is just, you know, I don't get a newspaper sent to the house. They don't do those sorts of things anymore. But to sit in front of the computer and just look at the box scores, watch highlights and see, you know, and see what's happened on a, on a Saturday and Sunday morning. It's just one of the funnest things ever. You know, get you a coffee, get you some of those little Hostess powdered donuts, and, you know, just get after it, man. It's just such good stuff. So that's what we're going to do on today's podcast is, uh, you know, so we'll call this one Box Score Sunday, so we're just going to go over some box scores. But, dude, those early mornings, man, just watching SportsCenter on repeat. You remember that, like, back in the day? It's like SportsCenter was always... It was during the week, Sports Center was 30 minutes long. And then on the weekend, Sports Center was an hour long. And always, I think it was on Monday mornings, like ESPN had plays of the week and they had that special plays of the week segment, right? And it was so good. And I would, as a kid, like I would watch Sports Center, the 30 minute Sports Center on repeat from 5 a.m. up until I had to leave for school. And I was, I was very well versed in sports as a young kid. Like I knew everything about golf and tennis and like sports that I would like never play. And, you know, baseball, basketball, football, like everything will come up, right? And, dude, I just, like, Vintage Sports Center is amazing, man. Like, if you listen to the podcast, you know I'm big on just going to YouTube and watching, like, old vintage videos. And you can find the best, like, old school baseball tonight videos and Sports Center videos. Dude, I love every second of it. So let's dig into some box scores, man. One of the things that caught me this morning, like, as soon as I woke up, is the Cincinnati Reds. They got themselves a slugger. Okay, and this guy, his nickname is The Punisher, and they're not kidding. Like, that's not an understatement at all. It's Aristides Aquino. Aristides Aquino. That's his name. He's a 25-year-old dude. He's from the Dominican. And this, so he's 25, right? So maybe he's a little bit of a late bloomer. I don't really know the history on how the Reds got him, but I know this year in AAA, he played 78 games and hit 28 home runs. So it's a safe bet that The Punisher nickname fits pretty good, man. I wish... I never had a nickname that cool, right? People will call me Q-Dog, and I think Q-Dog's pretty cool. I think having the nickname Q-Dog and having that bestowed upon me, it, it is a little bit gangster, you know what I mean? If if people see me and they're like, oh, yo, that's Q-Dog, like, you might not want to mess with the guy, but then as soon as you see me, like, I'm a pretty dopey dude, you know, I got some weird curly hair, kind of looks like Napoleon Dynamite, man, <laughs> so it's like I'm not super intimidating, but the Punisher, man, yo, the guy is super intimidating, he's hip. Holy crap, seven home runs in his first 10 games. Dude, could you imagine the joy behind that, just being a 25-year-old kid hitting seven home runs in your first 10 games? And he's not hitting these home runs off of slouches. Like, they're in the Reds are playing the Cubs right now, and he had a home run off Yu Darvish, which Yu Darvish has given up a lot of home runs this season. But if you've never seen Yu Darvish, if you've never faced Yu Darvish before, your chances of striking out are pretty good because he has six pitches and he can really spin a baseball, right? So he popped one off you, Darvish, and he hit two last night off Kyle Hendricks, one in the first inning and one in the third inning. And I'm like, oh, no, I think it was the second inning and the third inning. 
because he hit three home runs last night, three innings in a row, the second inning, the third inning, and then by the fourth inning came around, Kyle Hendricks had already been pulled. And the Cubs have this reliever named Dylan Maples who can also spin a baseball really well and throws really hard. And he hit one off Dylan Maples too and hit a home run off Cole Hamill. So the guy's like, he's hitting home runs off of pitchers that can pitch, man. Uh, so, dude, he's there, man. Anyone, scouts, coaches, dude. I think this guy, man, Aristides, Aristides Aquino. That's his name, Aristides Aquino. He, the way coaches and scouts describe him is they're talking raw power, speed. He can cover a ton of ground in the outfield. And he wears number 44, which is the number Eric Davis wore, who's a Reds legend that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. And he's getting compared to Eric Davis, but a lot of people say that he can cover more ground in the outfield than Eric Davis can. But what's cool about Aquino is he's got this open batting stance that looks like he's in the backyard playing softball with like, he had like just like shotgunned a, like a Coors Light. And now he's like up to bat because he's got a, he's, he has an open stance and he stands straight up. So he's just like a dude just waiting for the baseball, sort of like the way Eric Davis was. So Aquino's a right-handed guy and so is Eric Davis. And when Eric Davis would come up to the plate, he'd stand pretty straight up and the bat would, he'd he have really loose grip on the bat. And the bat would like, the bat wasn't straight up and down. When Eric Davis would stand at the plate, the bat would go towards first base and it would lean over and he would just kind of twirl the bat a little bit. And then when the pitch would come, he would like tune up and like lower his hands and really build a lot of power in there. And Aquino's sort of the same way. He stands in the box and he's just like super chill. The grip on the bat isn't tight at all. And then, but when the pitch is coming, he just. He, he, he rakes, he gears up, and he's pounding it, right? So this is obviously going to be a fun guy to watch, man. There's so many young dudes coming up in baseball, right? It's hard to keep up with all of them. So, uh, but, but it's exciting, man, because these are names I've never heard of before. But it's like that in baseball because when you play baseball, you know, it's that sport where if you're the number one overall pick, you, it's not a guarantee that you'll be good or not because what happens is when you start playing in pro baseball – you know, pitchers, they they see what you feed off of, right? They see what you can hit, and then they alter that accordingly. So if you've been playing high school, high school ball and, like, low-A, double-A ball or whatever, the pitching isn't as good as, like, when you get to the pros, and then that's the real deal. So a lot of a major league player's ability to be great is their ability to adjust to pitchers' adjustments, you know, the way they attack them and things like this. So Obviously, when guys come up early on, you know, it's a lot of, like, pitchers don't know how to throw them. So, oftentimes, the pitcher's always going to have the advantage if the batter's never faced them. But that's not true all the time. I think um, seven home runs in ten games, that ties a record, an all-time record. I believe Trevor Story did that, which would have been in 2015, I believe. And, obviously, Trevor Story didn't hold that pace. But Trevor Story can hit a baseball really good, right? He's an elite hitter in the league. He's a good shortstop. He's an all-star. And it's uh, Aristides Aquino, you know, might sort of be in that same way. And uh, I like a lot of what the Reds are doing, man. They've made moves for Trevor Bauer, but they've also been trading stuff as well. And, you know, they've got some pretty big, exciting bats in their lineup. I know. Like, they've got Joey Votto, who's having an off year. Eugenio Suarez, I think, is playing pretty good. They have a guy named Josh Van Meter, who I believe is really good. Nick Senzel's hitting well. Jose Peraza, I think, maybe he's having an off season. 
Uh, but he's their shortstop. And then they have Sonny Gray pitching. They have Alex Wood, who's going to be a free agent, who I think they should try to sign. He hasn't looked good this year. Alex Wood hasn't, but he's a good lefty. And I think they should uh, pursue him aggressively because he's not old. He doesn't have a lot of miles on his arm. And with Sonny Gray, if you were to re-sign Alex Wood, maybe you can bring Tanner Roark back because I think he's a free agent at the end of this year. But then... And throw that aside, and if you've got for the Reds, right, Sonny Gray, Trevor Bauer, Luis Castillo, who's elite, and then plus like the offensive guys that are coming out. And then if they were like maybe re-sign Alex Wood, the Cincinnati Reds, they can be pretty good soon, man. They really can. But I have to, dude, before I go to the next box score, I know I've been talking about one game for eight minutes, but I have to go over like some Eric Davis stuff, dude. There's so much cool stuff about Eric Davis that I didn't realize, and I don't know if a lot of people did realize. So let's like dig through some of these numbers. First and foremost, Eric Davis, dude, let's look at him, man. He um, he was an eighth-round pick, so he's a West Coast kid, man, went to school in California. He made his debut in 84. He won a World Series in 1990. That was where the Cincinnati Reds swept the heavily favorite Oakland Athletics, who were seemingly, I think, going to the World Series every year. Um, he played his last game in 2001. I think that was with the Baltimore Orioles, San Francisco Giants, actually. Um Eric Davis was a Cincinnati Red for nine years, but he was a Dodger for a couple years. He was a Cardinal for a couple years. Orioles, he played for the Tigers, then ended his career in San Francisco in 2001. So he was a San Francisco Giant in 01 when Barry Bonds broke the home run record, right? And it's crazy because I, I do. I feel like Eric Davis gets forgotten about every now and then. But to dig into some supremely impressive Eric Davis stuff. Now, I'm going to, before I get into the numbers, let me lead with this. No, 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 no. Hold on. I'm just going to start talking. Eric Davis was the first player ever to hit 30 home runs and steal 50 bases in a season. And that was in 1987. He stole exactly 50 bases, but hit 37 home runs, but only played 129 games. So he missed time that year, but still stole 50 bases and his 37 home runs, right? If he doesn't get injured, he's a 40-40 guy, hands down. I mean, he might have even been like a 40-60 guy. I'm not, man, I wish I knew the season Jose Canseco went 40-40, right? Because Jose Canseco was the first guy ever to do 40-40. I wonder if Eric Davis would have beat him to it if he stayed healthy. Hold on. Oh, uh, in 88. So in 1988, Jose Canseco was 23, and he played 158 games, 705 plate attempts, 42 home runs, 40 stolen bases, and that was in 88. And it was in 87 that instead of 702 plate appearances, Eric Davis only had 562 plate appearances, Still hit 37 home runs and still hit 50 stolen bases. So if you take Eric Davis's injured season and he ended up with like a 990, uh, wait, he had like a 991 OPS and a 155 OPS plus with 50 stolen bases. Remember that? Remember 50 stolen bases and 155 OPS plus. If I compare Eric Davis's 87 season to Jose Canseco's. 88 season. Okay, Canseco had a 170 OPS plus. We know he was on steroids, and he had a 959 OPS. And I, I mean, 30, Eric Davis hit 37 home runs in 129 games. In 158 games, um, Jose Canseco only hit five more home runs, but stole um, 10 less bases. So in a way, like Eric Davis's 87 non-steroid season 
was probably more impressive than Jose Canseco's 88 steroid season just because I don't think Eric Davis was on gear. He might have been. I don't know. He might have just been taking greenies. Who really knows? But um, that 87 season was super impressive because it was Canseco's 88 season where he won MVP. He was like the greatest player on the planet. All the rage, like a pair of Jinko jeans when you were in high school, right? But if you look at Eric Davis's 87 season, you could look at that and say, damn, like that was an impressive season. Um, Eric Davis also hit three grand slams in one month. Super wild stuff, dude. Other seasons he had in his career were good. He had a 34 home run season in 89. The stolen bases started to go down a little bit. So, like, for example, after his 50 home run, or excuse me, after his 50 stolen base season, he never got over 35 cents. But in even in 1986, he hit 27 home runs in 132 games and stole 80 bases with a 901 OPS. Impressive numbers at a 143 OPS plus. But check this out, dude. There's so much wild stuff about him. So in 1990, game four of the World Series, Eric Davis is playing left field. Willie McGee was an Oakland Athletic, and I think Willie was a switch hitter. And in this situation, Willie was batting left-handed. Willie hits a ball opposite field. It goes towards this, the left field center field gap. Eric Davis dives for it, initially catches it, but the ball pops out of his glove. And Eric Davis is, is right-handed, so he he catch, tries to catch the ball with his left-hand glove and then lands on his right side hard as hell, man. He looks like he got bound up big time. As it turns out, on this diving play trying to rob Willie McGee, he tore his kidney, tore his kidney in four places. I, I had to read it twice. I was like, what in the world? He tore his kidney in four places, and it took him three years to recover. So he tore his kidney at the end of at the Game 4 World Series 1990, the last game of the 1990 season, tore his kidney in four spots, comes back in 1991, numbers don't really look great, he only played 89 games in 91, only played 76 games in 92, misses a significant amount of time, and at that point, pretty much becomes a below-league average hitter, right, 11 home runs, 5 home runs, not really a whole lot of power, his age 31, and his age 30 season, he played for the Dodgers, so Cincinnati didn't re-sign him, they let him go, right, um, his age 31 season, man, it starts to kick up. He hits 20 home runs. He's right at a league average hitter with 100 OPS plus. And then, but he had got traded to Detroit during his age 31 season. And when he went to Detroit, like he really started to pick it up a little bit. But then in 1994, it was sort of hurt again, right? He had a lot of nagging injuries. So that's sort of what derailed Eric Davis was just obviously tearing his kidney in four places. He was a completely different player. But then when you have to sit out and you can't play baseball full time for the next three years, your body is going to slow down. And then it's easier to get like those little nagging injuries right where you can't play. It's sort of like what happens to Giancarlo Stanton. It seems like he's injured every year and it's hard to stay in game playing shape when you're injured all the time then when you come back it's like oh something else gets injured man it's like driving a Ford <laughs> you know what I'm saying man uh yeah yeah dude so John Carlos Stanton's kind of like a Ford Mustang right he looks really good but you don't want to drive the thing because it's probably gonna break down on the side of the road <laughs> I'm a Chevy guy through and through man get off me um so check this out man wild stuff with him dude in May of 1997 Eric Davis is diagnosed with colon cancer, and he begins treatment, right? In 1997, Eric Davis begins treatment for colon cancer. But in September of 97, while he is still 
in treatment for colon cancer. He returns to the Orioles in September because at this point in 97, he's a Baltimore Oriole, and he's 35 years old. So he's no spring chicken, dude. His numbers in 1997, while he had colon cancer, he batted 304 with an 883 OPS, 8 home runs, 25 rubies, batted 304, right? He starts his treatment for colon cancer. He's diagnosed in May, starts his treatment, comes back to the team in September. They're in the playoffs, right? Under treatment while being treated for colon cancer. I assume he's getting chemo and everything. He hits a game-winning home run in the 1997 ALCS while undergoing treatment for colon cancer. This is unbelievably crazy. Then the next year, after he's had colon cancer, because in 97, he only played 42 games, had colon cancer, played while getting treatment with colon cancer, comes back in 98, fresh off colon cancer, just comes out and bats 327 with a 970 OPS with 28 home runs, 89 RBIs. He only stole seven bases, so those days were behind him. But post-colon cancer, 970 OPS. Uh, 28 home runs in 131 games. Like, what the heck? But then after that, right, like 1998 was really about the first season that he was healthy for like Eric Davis standards because, you know, colon cancer would probably put everyone on the shelf. And that was pretty much his career, dude. But like so many interesting things about Eric Davis. And one of the things that I find most interesting about Eric, man, that really tells us maybe how underrated he was and how, you know, if we had more time with a healthy healthy Eric Davis, what would he have been like? I think one of the funnest things in looking at sports is looking is wondering what guys could have been like if they hadn't got injured. Like the most popular one is Bo Jackson. Like, oh, could Bo Jackson have been a two-sport Hall of Famer if he hadn't got injured? Everyone wonders what would have happened with Bo Jackson if he hadn't got injured, right? His his 30 for 30s one of my favorites because you just you see this awe-inspiring athlete who's doing out of this world things that are seemingly impossible and it's just amazing right and because he gets hurt man we really feel like that something was taken away from us right and it's sort of like that with Eric Davis once you get into it right Eric didn't have like the stardom around him of like bonos and playing two sports but Paul O'Neill who played with Eric Davis who also played with a lot of good guys on the New York Yankees Paul O'Neill said Eric Davis was the best hitter, the best runner, the best outfielder, and the best at everything he had ever seen on a baseball field, man. Eric Davis, man, I truly wonder, like, what could have been with him? I mean, I think you're looking at a first ballot Hall of Famer. He had 282 home runs. But between colon cancer and tearing your kidney in four places, that's a, that, you know, those things just didn't happen for him, man. And it's, I feel like you can tell how good of an athlete is like by their injuries. Like, Ken Griffey Jr. had a lot of freak injuries because he was such a good athlete, like ramming up against the wall and breaking his wrist and stuff like that. And even Bo Jackson's injury, man. So, Bo Jackson was injured in a wild card game where he was an Oakland Raider, and they were playing the Cincinnati Bengals. And Bo Jackson was running the ball towards the sideline, and a, a guy tackled him from behind and grabbed him. Didn't, like, didn't horse collar him, but I think grabbed him maybe by his pants or his body. And this was a guy that tackled him was probably like nearly 300 pounds. And what it was is Bo Jackson got tackled from behind while he was running at full speed. And it stopped Bo Jackson in his tracks. And Dr. James Andrews did Bo's hip surgery. And he said Bo Jackson was moving with such force and such power because the guy that tackled him from behind stopped Bo Jackson dead in his tracks. The power that Bo was generating when he was running when his right leg hit the ground, all that power and pressure, 
it pinched an artery in his hip, and his hip popped out of place. Bo Jackson rolls on the ground, pops his own hip back in place, and when he told the guys on the sideline that he that his hip was out of place and he had popped it back in place, they thought, they were like, that's impossible. You can't pop your hip back in place. He ends up missing the rest of the game. He's diagnosed with a hip pointer because nobody knows what it is. And then a few months later, he's getting a full-on hip replacement because the power that Bo Jackson had, he broke his hip because that's how powerful he was. Dr. James Andrews said that if any other athlete in the world had been tackled like that, they would get up and get ready for the next play, right? And that didn't happen. So when you look at Bo Jackson's injury, he was hurt so severely because of the power that his body produced. It was sort of like that with Eric Davis. Eric Davis was just in the gap running for a ball. He said he got a late jump on the ball, but he was still able to to get to the ball. And he initially caught the ball in his glove, but because he hit the ground so hard, the ball popped out and he hit the ground so hard because the powerful speed that he ran with. And then when he hit the ground, because he was moving with such velocity, he tore his kidney in four places, man. Unbelievable athlete. Eric Davis was all right. The next box score we'll go to is the Houston Astros. They beat the Baltimore Orioles. It was a close game at the end of the first inning. And that was it. Uh, The final score, Houston 23, Baltimore two. Uh, we're not talking about the Texans and the Ravens here. Indeed, the Houston Astros woo, got 25 hits, 23 runs, 13 extra base hits. This is a crazy box score, right? Because if you look at the box score, it looks like Michael Brantley started the game in left field. And then Jake Marisnik replaced Brantley, but then moved over to center field. So they did a little bit of switching, right? So two different outfielders. Brantley was two for three with two runs. Then Marisnik replaced him. He was two for three with two runs. On top of that... The Houston Astros played two different third basemen in this game. Alenmus Diaz and Alex Bregman. Both of them went three for three. <laughs> Except Bregman scored three runs. Alenmus Diaz only scored two runs. Jordan Alvarez, man, he's the new young Thundercat they got, right? He's the Cuban kid, dude. He's 22 years old. He's like 6'2", 225. He's a big kid. The yeah, big dude, man. The Houston Astros got him in a trade like three years ago, right? And all they had to do was send some guy named Josh Fields to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, I've realized this is why everyone always says, right, that the Los Angeles Dodgers won't give up their young prospects, right? They hold on to everybody. Gavin Lux, they don't trade. Dustin May, they don't trade. Will Smith, they didn't trade. Everyone knows the Astros, or excuse me, everyone knows the Dodgers. They don't trade their prospects. You want to know why? Jordan Alvarez, <laughs> that's why they don't trade their prospects. Not only last night did he go three for five with four runs, three home runs, and seven ribbies, but on the season, he's batting 353 with a 432 on base and 743 slugging, right? Josh Fields, at the time the Astros traded Josh Fields for Jordan Alvarez, Josh Fields was in AAA with like a 650 earned run average. And right now, Josh Fields is in AAA with a 650 earned run average. Like, and that was the thing when the Dodgers were like, oh, let's trade Jordan Alvarez for Josh Fields. Jordan Alvarez was 19 and Josh Fields was already 30. So this is an awful trade. So now I know why the Dodgers don't trade their prospects because they're not good at it, right? Theo Epstein could learn from this. Like, don't make bad trades. Just hold on to your guys forever, dude. And this kid, Jordan Alvarez, is nuts, man, because I've been hearing his name lately. And I was like, well, let me look up some of the stuff this kid's done, right? So I had just talked about Aristides Aquino, right? 
who hit seven home runs in his first 10 games, where Jordan Alvarez hit seven home runs in his first 12 games. But on top of that, he hit he got 51 RBIs in his first 45 games. The all-time record was held by this guy, man. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but Ted Williams? Yeah, he was a pretty good hitter. Ted Williams, in his first 45 career games, had 47 RBIs. But Jordan Alvarez has 51, man. He's really, um, you know, he's hitting good, dude. And the kid, man, by Jordan Alvarez, man, what they say about him, dude, is he, um, that's like the scouts and coaches say that Jordan Alvarez has great pitch recognition. He can barrel balls often. So he's got an easy time finding the ball with the barrel. He knows what pitch is coming, man. So he'll swing at stuff out of the zone, but he can he can determine if it's a ball or a strike pretty well. And the, the deep data shows that, but also... He's got a ton of hard contact, dude, and he can hit a ball really hard. So you got a guy who's big, can hit the ball really hard, and then he can barrel the ball really well. And that's that's sort of going to tell you, like, if a guy can recognize a pitch, he can, he's got good enough hand-eye coordination to barrel the ball often. And when he does, he can hit the ball hard. There's a lot of consistency in there, man. So if Jordan Alvarez can 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 adjust, you know, according to the way pitchers adjust to him, the Houston Nationals are going to have a really good left fielder on their hands. He's a left fielder, and he does some DH work too, right? He uh, <laughs> Listen to this, dude, though. Before he came up this season, listen, man, Jordan Alvarez was in AAA this year, right? And I'm going to, uh, dude, check out his AAA numbers, man. I think it's from this year, dude. Yeah. So this season, Jordan Alvarez started the season at AAA. He played 56 games. And hit 23 home runs. That's like a 68 home run pace. That's what they said for um, for like minor league ball because they play a shorter season than what the major leagues do. That's why minor league players always come up in September because the season's shorter, right? So it's by design. The guy was on pace to hit nearly 70 home runs, dude. He's he's a kid, man. He just turned 22 in July, dude. But this, this is one of the wildest box scores I've ever seen, dude. Jordan Alvarez, his third home run was off Steve Wilkerson, right? I just think his name might be Stevie Wilkerson. And, dude, so this is the guy, Stevie Wilkerson. That's his name, man. Stevie Wilkerson is the guy a couple weeks ago that was the first position player to have a save. Do you remember that? Yeah. Okay, so Stevie Wilkerson came in to pitch this game because when you're down 20-3, to you got to put some position players in to pitch. And, hey, our center fielder's done it before, right? And, dude, go to... um. I haven't posted it, man. If you go to MLB.com and go to like the Astros page or whatever, just watch Jordan Alvarez's third home run. He hits it off Stevie Wilkerson, and Stevie just throws it like he's a dad throwing batting practice to a kid. Like he's like, dude, get me out of here. Is this ever going to end? And Jordan Alvarez just powers up, dude, and blasts the living hell out of this ball and sends it out of the park, dude. And that made it. That was Jordan Alvarez's third home run, and I think at that time that made the score 23-2, to and that was in the top of the ninth. And I love the fact that the Houston Astros, they didn't let up on the gas pedal, man, and that's what you got to do because so many teams are like, oh, don't steal. You got a big lead or just roll over and let us win, dude. I love the fact, man, if you're going to be cutthroat and win a title, you got to put the foot on the throat and you got to keep pressing, man. And that's what Jordan Alvarez did in the top of the ninth. He's like, oh, I just hit a three-run home run, man. Good for him, dude. He's going to win Rookie of the Year because that's just what it's all about. Uh, you know, the pitching line for the Orioles wasn't good. They had a guy throw three innings and give up nine earned runs, two innings, five earned, two innings, six earned. It was a destructive victory, man. It was destructive, you know. But believe it or not, not the worst loss that the Baltimore Orioles have ever had to a Texas team. So apparently in 2007, 
And you'll probably remember this. In 2007, the Texas Rangers beat the Baltimore Orioles 30-3. to <laughs> It looks, yeah, that was just about like a football score, man. That was an 07-30-3, dude. Uh, that's, that's a pretty big deal, man. But Jordan Alvarez, dude, he's an impressive specimen, man. His fourth day as a major leaguer, he batted a cleanup for the Houston Astros, which at that time and still right now are arguably the best team in baseball, especially with their acquisition of Zach Granke, dude. Huge deal, man. Let's look at... I don't have my computer loaded enough. Let's see what other sort of stats I have. Again, these are Saturday's games because you're listening to this on Sunday. The Angels beat the Red Sox 12-4, dude. Mike Trout hit his first home run at Fenway, dude. Um, it's a shame, man, that the Angels stay under 500 because they end up running a uh, a pretty decent lineup there because Tommy Listellis had a good year. Obviously, Trout, Otani. Oh, word on Otani, dude. He um, is throwing again. Okay, so he threw. I don't know if it was on flat ground or off a mound. So he's not throwing breaking pitches yet, right? So he just threw fastballs. And yesterday he was he threw fastballs at 82 miles an hour. So I think they said he's throwing at like 40% or something like that. But everything looks like it's going good with Otani. Hopefully he'll be the Angels opening day starter next year. And, you know, maybe in 2020 we'll see the true two-way um, power of Shohei Otani with the 100-mile-an-hour fastballs. And, you know, the high batting average, dude. Otani's having a stellar season, dude. He's he's running a 349 on base. Slugging over 500, dude. So that's a pretty good deal against the Red Sox in Fenway. Uh, last night, he went two for five, dude. So you can't beat that. He didn't uh, strike out. No, he struck out two times, man. But, hey, what are you going to do, right? When you hit for that kind of power, dude. Um, Mike Trout, man, guys, you know, um, baseball writers and everybody are just basically saying Mike Trout is the runaway MVP this year even though his team's not going to make the postseason there's just nobody that's doing what Mike Trout's doing right now 39 home runs 92 ribbies he's 673 slugging with a 440 on base percentage it's like dude he's Mike Trout looks like he's just getting better man this is going to be his best season yet as far as home runs are concerned he's on a pretty good pace I wish I could tell you what that pace was off the top of my head if he's at 39 home runs right now what is this? This is August 11th is when I'm recording this. He's probably on like a 51 or 52 home run pace, man. And that's huge for the guy, dude, who at the end of this season is probably going to have like an 80 war. And as it turns out with Mike Trout, dude, if you judge Mike Trout by wins above replacement at the end of this season, and maybe that number is already taking effect right now, but per war, he's already in the top 50 greatest major league baseball players of all time. And he's 28 years old. And I'm pretty sure he turned 28 like this month. So <laughs> that, that's pretty wild stuff. Again, I don't know what he's on pace for, but I think it's probably something like 52 home runs. Let's get to the rest of the box scores. Ooh, regarding the Red Sox, though, man, I don't think they're going to make the postseason. Nobody's really pitching too well for him. I'm wanting to say like Chris Sale's last handful of starts, he's got like a six ERA. They're not really getting anything out of Porcello at all. Nate Valdi's pitching out of the bullpen and... It sort of might be too little too late with the Red Sox to get him. I think he's been hit and miss. You know, you can obviously tell Nathan evaldi has been out for most of the year. But the Red Sox right now, I think, are 15 behind in the division and maybe about like eight games in the wild card or something like that. It just doesn't look like they're as good as the Oakland Athletics. It doesn't look like they're as good as the Tampa Bay Rays. And those are the two teams they would, you know, sort of have to get past to actually make the wild card. And they're for sure not as good as the Yankees at this point. Um... What else on Saturday, dude? Big matchups over there. San Francisco and the Phillies, man, because they're both vying for a wild card spot. Jeff Samarja yesterday pitched a gem, dude. He's got a 355 ERA on the year. 
Uh, you know, the Giants quieted the Phillies three to one, man. Um, some interesting stuff going on out there in San Francisco, right? So at the end of this year, Madison Bumgarner's a free agent. I'm so curious where he's going to go, man. I don't know if I, I maybe I see him re-signing with the San Francisco Giants. I don't, I don't know. It, it's hard to say, man. You know, he's sort of one of those guys like that Clayton Kershaw type dude where you're like, man, I don't, do I ever see this guy leaving? But with the San Francisco Giants, you know, they have the new GM that they have this year, I think was the former GM of the Los Angeles Star Dodgers, Farhan Zaidi. And, you know, they're probably going to want to get younger. And I don't know if it makes a whole lot of sense to sign Madison Bumgarner because if he's not 30, he's about to be. And teams don't usually go that route. And, you know, Mad Bum has like diminished velocity and things like this. But the Giants, man, if you've never watched the kid, you've probably heard the name, man, Mike Yastrzemski. So let's call Yastrzemski's grandson. He's having a damn good season this year, man. 263, he's slugging 487. He's a productive hitter on the season right now. And that's sort of one I don't think the Giants have really that great of a farm system. Yastrzemski's already 28, so he just like sort of came up this year. So this is, I think, his first season in pro ball. 11 homers, 37 ribbies, man. He's he's hitting decent, you know, in a part that's not really that great to hit in. Yeah, will he be one of those guys that pitchers can adjust to pretty easy? Possibly, man. So, you know, we don't really know much about that. The Phillies are just sort of a weird team right now, man. Their pitching is probably not what they thought it was going to be. People are sort of down on Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper's, I mean, he's he's just he's not slugging what he should be, man. A 473 slugging percentage. Bryce obviously isn't hitting the ball hard enough. We're in the juice ball era. He's only got 21 home runs right now. But otherwise, like, he's doing pretty good on the team. But, you know, guys like Reese Hoskins, Reese Hoskins is batting like 190 since the All-Star break. Those things aren't good. Scott Kingery came out pretty hot from... I don't know if he was injured or not, but Scott Kingery's uh he was a rookie last year, so he'll play third base and center field sometimes for the Phillies. Man, I think he's been playing third base lately, but I don't I don't see the Phillies making the postseason this year, man. It doesn't really look like it's gonna happen for him. Who knows? I think they're if I'm not mistaken, man, I think the Phillies are in the the hunt right now for the wild card. The ah, the Phillies are one and a half games back on the wild card. The two teams right now that have the wild card are the Nationals and the Brewers, and the Cardinals and Mets are only a half game back, and the, the, the Phillies just aren't going to make the postseason, man, because they're not better than the four teams above them right now, and I don't really think there's anything they can do to go on a run that's going to sort of hold that thing, man, but that's what you're running with there, man. Tigers, uh, Royals beat the Tigers 7 to nothing. Good thing about that, dude, is last night, man, the... Kansas City Royals wore the Kansas City Monarchs jerseys, dude. Negro League team, the best Negro League team ever in the history of the Negro Leagues was the Kansas City Monarchs, man. I've talked about them a few episodes ago. Tons of, dude, tons of stars on that team, man. Um, and so it's super rad they represented that, man. But Jorge Soler, dude, is, I think, maybe on like a 40 home run base this year for the Kansas City Royals, man. So he's kind of a slugger up and coming. I think he's maybe 27 now. Big Cuban dude, man. Probably like 6'4", 250, dude. Big boy. Yeah, the Kansas City Monarchs, dude, had a lot of notable players, dude, that were phenomenal guys. Like George Altman, he came up and played for the Cubs, dude. Obviously, like Ernie Banks was a Kansas City Monarch. I've talked about a guy named Cool Papa Bell. You remember that name? Because when I was calling Cool Papa Bell, I was calling Josh Bell, Cool Papa Josh Bell. Cool Papa Bell was a stud, dude. Um, I, I want to say Jackie Robinson was on the Kansas City Monarchs, too, I believe. Yeah, Jackie Robinson. There's a pitcher named Bullet Joe Rogan, dude. Just tons of studs on this team, man. But they wore those throwback jerseys last night, man, which it was pretty rad. Neither of those teams are going to be in contention for, like, years. The Braves, dude. The Marlins beat the Braves last night. 
This is getting a little shaky over there in Atlanta, man, with the Nationals and the Mets, you know, sort of breathing down their neck. The lead in the NL East right now is, like, good enough, I guess, because the Braves are up. They've got, like, what, a six and a half game lead or whatever. And, I mean, what's today's date, right? Today's August 11th, man, and I'll always go with that. Like, can a team come back? And I'll always remember the 95 Mariners were behind 13 games on August 3rd, right? 13 games on August 3rd, and they won the division on a game 163 tiebreaker, right? So six and six and a half back, man, the Braves don't have the division in the bag right now. And the Mets honestly just aren't going to lose games anymore. So that's 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 what's happening there, man. Um, the Twins beat the Indians, dude. That's a fight for the division right there, no doubt about it. The White Sox beat the Athletics, dude. And the White Sox, I don't know if they're going to be good this year or next year, man. I really have no idea. Tanner Roark pitched for the Athletics, dude. Went like six innings, two earned. Six and two-thirds, two earned. The the Athletics, man, they're getting hot, dude. So I got the Athletics in the postseason. They might do damage this year. So last year, they went to the wild card game against the New York Yankees, right? And the Yankees beat them. And the Yankees had the pitching for it. Last year, when the Athletics played that wild card game, they played with an opener, right? And I think it was Liam Hendricks that opened that game, who's pitching phenomenal this year. But last year it went like crap, right? And that didn't work. And he gave up a lot of runs and the A's lost and you knew they were going to lose the whole game, right? So it wasn't a great game. But this year, dude, Mike Fires, man, he will probably be the guy to pitch their wild card game. And he's got an ERA under three and a half. He's got a like, oh crap, man. Like, I don't know how many quality starts this year, but he'll go out. Oh shit. What was it? It was the past 19 games for Mike Fires, his past 19 starts, he has not allowed more than three earned runs in any of those 19 starts, dude. So he's pitching really well. And then the offense on the athletics, dude, shortstop Marcus Simeon, he went one for four last night, dude. He's uh, running to 363 on base and slugging 475, dude. He's got power for a shortstop, man. You obviously know Matt Chapman, dude. You saw him in the home run derby. Matt Olson is slugging 513. He's got great numbers over there at first base. And Mark Canna is he plays center field and, oh, shoot, Mark Canna honestly might catch some. He's either a center fielder and a catcher or a center fielder. And a, it's He's a center fielder and a first baseman, Mark Canna is. He's slugging 514, dude, with a 384 on base, dude. And then Chris Davis, obviously, he's, I don't know what his seasons look like this year. I think he's been hurt some. So he's not really been putting up. But Chris Davis is back in the lineup. Steven Piscotty's back in the lineup, dude. And he had a great year last year, dude. Steven Piscotty can hit, man. So the Athletics could be dangerous this year. They did make, I think they made a few additions to the bullpen. I'm not really too sure, but I know they got Tanner Roark. Their starters, I think, look better this year than what they did last year. So many guys got hurt last year. But Tanner Roark seems like he's being pretty productive. And then Mike Fires obviously, is producing pretty well. And then Liam Hen. Liam Hendricks, that's the guy's name. That's their closer, dude. And he's running like a buck sixty-two ERA, dude. He's um he's a big dude, man. He can I mean he's not overly huge, but he can throw like high nineties. He might even be able to touch the hundreds. I'm not too sure. Uh the Chicago White Sox, dude. Reynaldo Lopez is one of their stud starters, right? So Lucas Giolito obviously has had his breakout year this year. But Reynaldo Lopez, he started the season like in sort of a regression because last year he had some pretty good outings. Reynaldo Lopez is finally starting to calm down, dude. So when you look at the Chicago White Sox and you're like, hey, man, when the hell is this team going to be good? It, next year, I think they'll be a lot better. And depending on what the Twins and the Indians look like in the offseason, because, you know, the Twins can be good one year, not good the next. And I think the Indians are sort of on their way down. If the White Sox come into 2020 
God, next year's 2020. Holy shit. I need a hoverboard ASAP. If uh, the White Sox, right, come into 2020 with Reynaldo Lopez, Michael Kopech, Lucas Giolito, and Dylan Cease, oh, four good starters, man. I don't know if the Kings of Chicago might be the Cubs, but it might be the White Sox next year, man. It's really hard to say. Other stuff on the box score. I'm at 39 minutes. We'll close this down. The Mets, dude. Whoa, the Mets rallied again last night. So the Mets have won eight straight games. They had to come back. I'm wanting to say Fernando Rodney, who's like 110 years old. I think he went to high school with Jesus. Gave up two runs in the bottom of the eighth. Yeah, it was Fernando that blew it. Yeah, two runs in the bottom of the eighth, man. And that was just one of those things. I don't know who popped him or what happened because I didn't. I don't know if I watched last night's game. I don't really know if I can remember what happened. Uh, looks like Joe Panic got a hit. Joe Panic scored. Um, J.D. Davis hit a sack fly to score that second run. Yeah, something along those lines, man. But either way, dude, the, the, the Mets are hitting good, man. Their pitching obviously is good, but it's the hitting that's coming through, man, because we sort of always knew the pitching was there. And now that the hitting is coming aboard and actually scoring runs... Pitching is more motivated, man. So Zach Wheeler might have not been super impressive all season with his 450 ERA. Look for him to get better just because Strowman's hype being in the clubhouse. Cindergaard, his last two or three starts, man, I feel like he's been seven innings. And last night against this Nationals team in a really meaningful situation, seven innings, only two walks, only five Ks, but 97 pitches, man. He retired batters, dude. He worked around some jams, obviously, because it looks like he had seven hits. And then Seth Lugo coming out of the Mets bullpen. He might be really the only good thing the Mets have in the bullpen, but that's what they got going for him anyway. Uh, Padres beat the Rockies 8-5. Man, neither of those teams are making the postseason, so it's sort of whatever. But Fernando Tatis Jr. is, I know, Pete Alonso. Man, honestly, hold on. Honestly, Pete Alonso might win Rookie of the Year. What did, uh, what did Fernando Tatis do last night? He went one for five, dude. But Fernando Tatis, bro, his numbers are good, dude. He's slugging. He's a shortstop, right? But he's a tall shortstop, dude. He's 6'3", 185. Man, he's a tall, slender dude. But on the season right now, man, he's batting 324 with a 387 on base and a 607 slugging. So he's got 22 home runs and 53 ribbies, right? So if you're like, oh, Fernando Tatis Jr., those look like Rookie of the Year numbers. So let's dig into Fernando Tatis Jr.'s one for five night last night. Okay, wins above replacement right now for baseball reference. Fernando Tatis Jr. is 4.3 wins above replacement. Pete Alonso's only 3.9, dude. And I think a lot of that comes from, one, his batting average, dude. So Pete Alonso, he bats 258, but he's got a 362 on base. That 362 on base is only 20 points lower than Fernando Tatis' 387 on base. Um, his OPS, Fernando Tatis owns a 995, which is higher than Pete's at 956 because believe it or not, big Pete Alonso only slugs 594. So Fernando Tatis Jr. has a higher on-base percentage and slugs more. Fernando's played in 81 games and Pete's played in 116, right? But what makes Pete look good is he's got 38 home runs and 85 RBIs on the year. Pete Alonso, his defensive war is a negative number. Fernando Tatis' defensive war is 0.2, so that's a positive number. And Fernando Tatis Jr. is only 20. Okay, Pete Alonso's already 24, so Pete's an older guy and he's hitting more home home runs. But for as far as like OPS and OPS plus, those numbers belong to Fernando Tatis Jr. because he's a 20-year-old shortstop. If I sit back, I love Pete Alonso's 38 home runs and the fact that he's helping. 
his team get to the postseason, right? So if you take that sort of stance and you're like, well, the rookie of the year, Pete Alonso may be older, right? Because take away the team aspect of it. And when you have a 20-year-old doing what Fernando Tatis is doing compared to an older guy in Pete Alonso doing what he's doing, I'm more inclined to be like, hey, the more impressive thing might be the 20-year-old because my 20-year-old has played in less games, so he doesn't have as many home runs. But he's got a higher on base, and he's got a higher slugging percentage, and he's got a higher OPS plus, and he's probably a better defender because he plays shortstop, which is probably more of an impact position on defense, right? So you would want to say, give it to the 20-year-old, right? But the New York Mets are in the midst of a comeback where if they make the postseason and do some damage, you've got to look at Pete Pete Alonso and say, yo, how is that guy not my rookie of the year right now? Because the impact he's had on the New York Mets, I don't care what position he plays or what age he is because he's four years older, I'm going to look at it and say, yo, if he wasn't playing this good and he wasn't on this team, the Mets would not be where they're at. So at that point, I, I would normally give it to maybe Fernando Tatis Jr. if neither team was going to make the postseason. But because what Pete's doing for the Mets is so outstanding, I would say Pete Alonso would be the the rookie of the year, hands down, man. And yeah, he's got 38 home runs. And you know maybe some of that is diminished from the juice ball. But bro, he's hitting 38 home runs, man. And he's got a good on base, which tells me his eye is not bad. And at 38 home runs, that's pretty high up in the league right now. So everyone's hitting a juice ball right now. And Pete Alonso, I mean, Mike Trout's got 39 home runs. Yelich probably has about 39. And Pete Alonso has 38. So he's tops in the league as far as generating power and with his 85 RBIs, dude. Um, but Fernando Tatis is a stud, man. And I'm pretty sure the, you know how, you want to know how the, Padres got Fernando Tatis? You might know, man, if you're a Padres fan or if you're a White Sox fan because the White Sox, the Chicago White Sox had Fernando Tatis, man. And I guess maybe this was like in 2015. They, I don't know what year it was, man, but I I think it was around 2015. The White Sox traded Fernando Tatis Jr. for James Shields. (laughs) That was horrible, man. I guess they thought they were going to win, man, and they has signed Fernando Tatis out of Dominican Republic, and hell, when they traded him, he must have only been 16 years old, right? And so you sort of like go for the win at that point, and that's sort of one of those boneheaded moves like a Theo Epstein move who trades Eloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease for Jose Quintana, right? That's not a good move either, man. But the Fernando Tatis Jr. move might actually even be worse. <laughs> so good for the Padres on that. They need it, dude. I mean, I'm a... I'm, I shouldn't say I'm a big Padres fan, but I like the old school Padres uniforms and I love Tony Gwynn. So I'm sort of just like, I like the Padres, man. And I don't like the Dodgers. I don't listen. I don't dislike any baseball team. I'm, I'm a fan of the underdog always. So when it comes to the Padres, I'm like, oh, I want the Padres to get good so they can challenge the Dodgers and we can, we get some real good games over here, man. Like I can't wait, you know, for the next six, seven, eight years, it's going to be Walker Bueller versus Fernando Tatis and this whole Padres lineup, dude. And bro, if you haven't watched Walker Bueller pitch, that's something you got to watch, man. That guy can throw. Okay. We're 46 minutes, man. I'm going to go ahead and end the Sunday box score. Now get this podcast uploaded. Bless your heart for listening to me rant for the last 47 minutes. But I'm glad you listened, man. Thanks for listening. You know the routine. I said it on the last episode, man. If you want some greatest on show on dirt, uh, baseball podcast stickers, I'll leave the social media links in the podcast description. Click a link. Message us. Add us. Direct, slide into our DMs, man. Just don't do anything weird. You know, I'm married. But just ask for the stickers and I'll give them to you, my dude. 
nothing sexual in the DMs. That's what I'm saying. Because that's what kids say these days. They say they want to slide into the DMs. And that means you're a pervert, I think. Because Wilson Contreras did that a couple years ago to Mia Khalifa. She does adult films with no clothes on. As Yeah. And Wilson Contreras was sliding in her DMs. And he was like, hi, how are you doing today? And I'm just sort of like, well, that's a weird thing, man. Yeah. Uh, what a creep sauce. But... I'll see you guys, man. I'll see you guys. Hopefully, I'll record again on like Monday or Tuesday. We never know. But enjoy some Sunday baseball. Enjoy some Monday baseball. And we'll catch you guys next time. Later, Gators.